We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1999's Ravenous, directed by Antonia Bird and written by Ted Griffin. Here's a clip. I'm sending you to California, Fort Spencer. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. We need a supportable explanation. Uh-huh. Captain John Boyd is about to discover... No one just ends up at Fort Spencer. We come for a reason. Yours being? Well, something he never imagined. We have a great sense of camaraderie here at Fort Spencer. (laughs) This Indian scout told me a curious story. Winged eagle. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Man eats the flesh of another. (gasps) He absorbs the other man's strength. Now, one man must choose. We need others. Between having dinner Not and being dinner. <laughs> That's so annoying. Guy Pierce. Ives! I'm gonna kill him. Robert Carlyle. He was tough, but then a good soldier ought to be. Jeffrey Jones. Me, uh, I bring you to the fold. What's wrong? David Arquette. Ah! <laughs> There's no guilt. I gotta eat. Ah! It's tough making friends. Eat to live. Don't live to eat. That was really sneaky. Alright, that was a clip from 1999's Ravenous, again directed by Antonia Bird and written by Ted Griffin. Joining me, as always, hungry to talk about this movie is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? Just a quick FYI for listeners. If you ever want to start a podcast, never, ever buy a Razer computer. Every time we sit down to do a podcast, it's a nightmare for me to get started. My only question is, what the hell is a Razer computer? Is that a brand? That's our sponsor today, Patrick. It's one of those gaming computers, and I got all, like, googly-eyed over all the neon lights and colors, and it looks really slick and futuristic, 
but it has its own built-in audio mix board. And I don't understand how to set the settings properly each and every single time we do a podcast. It takes me 20 minutes to set up. Oh, boy. Uh, also joining us, who probably knows more about what Rick's talking about, is Simon Howell. What up, Patrick? <laughs> Not too much. And starving to get back on the podcast again. <laughs> Is Mike uh, I, I, I see what you're doing, and see, I have to say, and I do not like it. I appreciate it because there's a lot of cannibalism puns in this movie. So I knew Mike would like it. <laughs> Mike's a pun guy like me. So. Oh, yeah. Mike Warby also joining us. Yes, hi. <laughs> hi, it's me. <laughs> Thank you, Simon, for picking this dark, although funny, cannibal movie in the middle of summertime. I want to watch something light, and he picks Ravenous. I'm going to do my best to explain why I picked this movie and what this movie is, which is actually really hard to do. Uh, I, I picked Ravenous because I somehow had never seen it, despite knowing of its legend for years and always wanting to see it and just uh, enjoy it, like seeing the cast and thinking that cast looks really fun. Damon Albarn did some of the music, but uh, I never actually got around to watching it. And I thought, hey, I'll program it for the show. Pretty sure I'm going to love it. And uh, the rest will take care of itself. Uh, so Ravenous is a... Uh, an impossible to categorize movie from 1999 directed by Antonia Bird, who took over after uh, two previous directors, one credited uh, one whose name you can find one who you can't uh, both got sacked. Uh, she took on the movie with, I believe a week of prep and um, Robert Carlyle brought her in and she ended up turning out this film. That's sort of a Western sort of a horror movie, sort of a satire, sort of a cannibalism movie sort of a dark comedy, sort of a historical slash military drama, sort of a wilderness survival epic, uh, and sort of none of those things. Oh, and also quite homoerotic, which we'll get into. Yep. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's the thing that I mostly love about this movie. And this, uh, a lot of the, I think a lot of the films I pick have this in common. There is only one ravenous. There's other movies that are, you know, kind of have riffed on it a little bit or have picked up on some stuff. But I have never seen a movie remotely like this one. And that's so valuable. This is a really hard movie to recommend. Let's say my nephew wants me to recommend him a horror film. And I've never really recommended anything that he's liked prior. I feel like especially with this generation of people who aren't really hardcore movie buffs, they can easily drop out within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Like, I think... This is a movie when you do recommend the movie, it comes with a warning, an asterisk, and or save it for a later recommendation. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but I kind of feel like it's a movie that I know a lot of people who have never watched it just based on the trailer, the the actual poster, the DVD slash VHS cover, and the first five minutes. A lot of people wow. tend to drop out. I have a question for you. So you say, I think this is what we can get into a discussion of this movie about is what is the warning that you would give to people about this? Because I personally don't see Ravenous. I, I by the way, had seen this movie when it came out. I remember not liking it at the time. Um, and, you know, but that was 20 years ago or whatever. <laughs> so I loved this movie this time around. Yes! Absolutely. Loved exactly. It. But that uh, proves my point, Patrick. But, but, What's the warning you would give? The warning is, well, first of all, you people need to trust you when it comes to movie recommendations. So let's say, for example, I recommend True Romance and my nephew loves it. And then I recommend The Thing and he loves it. I've gained this trust. So I'm like, look, sit down, watch this movie. Trust me, though. You need to get through it. Get to the very end. You're going to love it. 
because a lot of people drop out within the first 15, 20 minutes. And the warning is people tend to expect, I don't know, a straight up horror film. And it's, it's all over the map. Like Simon, I think you stole my notes here. I'm not even joking. I'm going to copy and paste my notes so you can see it. Cause I wrote pretty much the exact same thing here. I'm like, it's several genres mixed into this mashup of what's a bleak comedy, a hyper violent survival drama, a supernatural creature feature akin to a vampire movie, a period Western, a satire. There's so much going on here. And so I think a lot of people just don't know what to expect. And case in point, just the soundtrack alone, it's all over the place. Tonally, it's all over the place. So a lot of people don't know how to react to the movie on a first time watch. Yeah, I love this movie so much more after watching it for the third time. I think it's one of the best horror films ever made. And again, I kind of like, I'm curious as to what, see all those things that you mentioned about it being a mashup of different genres. I don't see that as a warning to people or not being known how they're going to react to it. Like to me, that's a positive. I would recommend this to people like saying, I have no idea what you're going to think of this movie. I have no idea what anybody's going to think of this movie. Because like Simon said, there is no other movie like this. And that's one of the reasons why I was, I didn't know what the hell was going on for a lot of it. Uh, And I recently watched another movie where that, that happened to me with at least a character or for about the entire movie, I had no idea what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. I loved that that surprise. So, um, but we got to get Mike in here because I know Mike is a big fan of this movie. I believe he's written about it for Goombastomp.com. Twice. Uh, Twice. Twice, yeah. yeah. Mike, what's your history with Ravenous? Did you like it the first time you saw it? Oh, yeah. See, uh, going, going kind of opposite from what Rick was saying, um, what I found about this movie is that within the first five minutes, the hook comes... When the when that weird soundtrack kicks in, as um, Boyd is walking across the the field, and it's got that really weird soundtrack, I think that's the hook. It is it is strange, but it's so unique that you're like, what is this movie? Right? Like, I mean, regardless of whether you like this movie or not, it has your undivided attention. I feel like because it's just it is so weird. And like I was saying to you guys before I, before we started recording, I've seen this movie like forty times. This was the movie that when we would be me and friends and be like, what should we watch? I was, of course, the movie guy. So I would think of this movie because nobody, nobody I knew had ever seen it. Every girl who I would be dating for a bit, I would say, let's watch Ravenous. You know, because because nobody's, Ravenous test. Ravenous nobody's test, yes. nobody's seen it. So or most people hadn't even heard of it. So I was like, I still think it's not an easy movie to get through in a first watch because it's tonally all over the place. Well, that's why I know Christina was the one because she loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her the ring right there. She loved Old Boy. She loved Ravenous. Just take my heart. <laughs> you know, my my thing, Rick, with this is I feel like it is totally – I don't think it's tonally all over the place. I think it actually knows exactly what it is. Um, but I don't think that when I first saw this, I was in the right headspace for it. I was definitely more into traditional movies at the time, and I hadn't quite expanded my tastes back then. Okay, so, can I can I just defend myself because I feel like I'm on trial right now, and you guys are like no 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 the prosecutors. No. It's about the soundtrack. Like we respond to sound more so on an emotional level than we do the actual picture. We've talked about this on the podcast several times. Watch a movie with the sound off, watch a movie with the sound on, watch a movie without the soundtrack, and watch a movie with the soundtrack. You'll have a different emotional reaction to a film. So this film has two composers. It has the legendary composer, Michael Nyman, who most people know for his award-winning score for the piano, Gene Campion's piano, right? And it also has the score slash soundtrack 
from Damon Albarn, who used to be the front the front man of Blur. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's also the co-founder of the Gorillas, right? Correct. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So you have these two musicians with completely two different styles of how they bring their their vision of what the music and the sound should sound like for this movie. And that's what I mean about how tonally, like it's the way it sounds, like the juxtaposition of those two composers, uh, the the banjo and the act. Like by the way, Simon, I um I told Simon yesterday I hated the soundtrack. I watched the movie again and I listened to the soundtrack by itself on YouTube. I think the soundtrack is amazing, but I know a lot of people are turned off at the start because of the soundtrack. Which is funny because the soundtrack to me is what makes this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it, gave it, I, it gave it its own flavor. It's such a yeah, unique flavor. Take that I, music, take that score away. And I think you've got a fairly, like it's not standard, but it's going to be far, far, a far more normal sort it's of. It's like The Shining, man. You need this yeah. music to give the atmosphere. Like take the music out of The Shining and it's still a good movie, but it's not going to have that same flavor. The, um, yeah, it's going to be a, a, one long shot of a guy walking down a hallway. Exactly. There's a one of the two commentary tracks uh, that come on the DVD is with Albarn and Antonia Bird, and because I want to talk in more specific terms about what makes the music so strange, and um, I think uh, to explain it to someone who hasn't seen it, first of all, there's a strange mix of live and synthesized elements. So you'll be listening to a scene that has lush, seemingly real strings. And then the next, it'll be obviously keyboards, obviously synthesizers, like obviously not a real banjo or whatever um, in, in certain scenes. So that's really odd. I did not know that because I'm not, I'm not like really well versed in, in music production. And, and it's you know, probably a, a product of two different guys working. And I don't know how, how much they work together. Uh, also in the commentary track, kind of interesting, um, and I think kind of a, a sign of how seat of the pants everything was. And also the fact that Albarn hadn't really done uh, much film music before, I don't believe. Um, he's talking about how he wrote uh, one of his favorite pieces of music for a scene where there's lots of dialogue because he didn't understand that, uh, you know, he didn't understand that they were going to have to mix down his music so people could understand what was being said <laughs> by the actors in the film because he just didn't have any fucking experience. So there's like a weird... And, uh, you know, contrast with with Nyman, who is, of course, a total pro, like a prose pro. So there's like I think that's a great uh, sort of synecdoche for the movie as a whole, which is like a really eclectic mix of approaches that synthesizes into something totally unique. Yeah, if I had to guess, it was probably um, what's the guy's name? Um, Calhoun, probably his story telling of what happened in the in the cave. Right. That would be my guess of like a scene with a lot of dialogue, but has very intense music. I kind of felt that that specific scene was more of Michael Nyman and not the front man from Blur. Well, actually, that's and that's another thing that's funny is um, there is scenes where, like, for instance, when they're when Guy Pierce is in the uh, I think it's in the scene where when Guy Pierce is in the sort of pit with a dying Neil McDonough um, and there's this really ornate uh, string melody. And all and Albarn even says, "Okay, that's one of mine." And I I liked it. It's such a strong piece of music. It's sort of sad that it only shows up this one time. Um, and so I, I I would have guessed that, for instance, was a Nyman piece, but apparently not. So like I don't know. There's a weird cross cross blending of influences that's happening as well. 
I was going to say, we're probably 15 minutes in and we haven't really even explained what this movie is about, have we? Like, It's about cannibals. Yes, yeah, but sort of. <laughs> maybe we should get... Mike, how about you give us a, a general synopsis since so, you've seen it more times than us combined. And, and Mike, what is it really about? Well, the, yes, it's, of course it's a... Well, we'll get into that later. <laughs> but the basic, <laughs> the basic plot, like the elevator pitch for this movie is a guy shows up to a military outpost saying that... Um, they had sort of a donor party situation where everybody had been forced to turn to cannibalism in order to survive. But one guy got really into it and started killing everybody and eating them. And then supposedly this Calhoun guy is the only survivor. And they, they, so they undertake this mission to go bring this guy to justice. That's, that's the basic plot of this movie. Um, the, it, and, and it's 1847, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's manifest destiny, right? It's, it's, it takes place in a specific time, 1847, which I believe Patrick, you're American is a pivotal moment in American history. Well, it's, it's after the Mexican American war. It was Westward expansion era. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Okay, but this movie takes place in California. So this is when they move West and they're trying to expand the States, right? Yeah, after the after the Mexican American War is when the United States basically took over the entire western half of the United States. Like Me- Mexico was was uh, lost the war and, and had to leave California, Texas, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, all those other states. Okay, and can you or anyone can someone explain Manifest Destiny? Like, where did the actual term come from? Like, who coined it? I'm not sure who coined oh, it, man. but I believe Manifest Destiny is referred to as like. God has a chosen people. The chosen people are the ones who are able to conquer. Therefore, by their because they have the better technology and the better whatever, it's their USA, destiny to take over. Essentially, USA, USA. yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I believe that is the yeah. that's the basic idea behind Manifest Destiny. So basically, this movie has a lot to say about them expanding the the territories, taking over land. As much as it does about cannibalism, that's I, certainly an important element. I, I don't know if it's, I, I'm like I'm not I'm not well versed in American politics, which is why I'm asking it as Patrick. Okay, fair enough. Oh yeah, I, I mean I I don't know. I mean this 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 movie has about as much of it layered in as as any movie from the '90s does. Movies back then weren't so direct with their you know political messages. So yeah, is there a little bit in in a you know, in there about that with the, with the whole cannibalism metaphor and everything like that. Yes. For anybody who's listening though, do not get the sense. You, you have to go looking for it in this movie. For yeah. The most it's part. not preachy. There, yeah. It's subtle. There might be a little scene where maybe you get an inkling that there's a message behind it. But for the most part, this is something like the metaphor is very well, well hidden and perfectly entertaining. But the reason why I ask is because the specific outpost that they travel to in terms of its geographic location, isn't that the outpost in which everyone passes by in order to travel to California? So therefore he feels like it's the best place to settle in which he can feed off of people who pass by. No one would ever uh, suspect that they're killing them off because they would just assume that whatever, something happened to them on the way to California. I believe that that's the, it's in the Sierras. Um, So I, that obviously was going to be one path. There are a couple of paths through to California, but that was obviously one that people were going to take. And maybe they were going to be taking that on their way up to Oregon as well. Uh, hard to say, although they do reference gold. So I'm assuming it's mostly people coming to California. 
Thousands yeah. of gold hungry Americans. Yeah, because <laughs> that would have been that, that would have been two years before, you know, the, the San Francisco 49ers. 49ers were the ones that looked for gold because it happened in 1849. This movie's in 1847, so it would have been a couple of years before there was the gold rush right in California. I did not know that. My favorite football team is the 49ers, and I had no idea why they were called the 49ers. Yeah, yeah, it's because of that 49 gold rush. Everyone in this movie is hungry for something. Gold, flesh, blood. Redemption. Dick. Mm. <laughs> dick, yeah. Absolutely dick. We gotta get into this homoeroticism soon. Cause that is like yes. to me, that is the that is the subtext of the movie that I enjoy the most. That you can you can totally watch this movie, like Patrick was saying, it's way more subtle. But you could totally watch this movie and not even get at all like if you're just watching it as a horror movie and you're just taking what you see, you're not even gonna pick up on how much of this movie is about like gay subtext see that's me i i had no <laughs> idea <laughs> that we were going to be talking about that i picked up on none of that i got a little bit of the westward expansion of the manifest destiny stuff i was like okay mm -hmm. i see what they're doing here clever little cannibalism metaphor i did not pick up on the the homoerotic subtext though you guys are gonna have to explain that one you, you didn't pick up on the scene in which robert carlyle basically has like a freaking orgasm on screen <laughs> Which scene is that? When he's like licking Guy Pierce's blood, the guy is having an orgasm. Man, the, I'm what, not even joking. What wait? What makes it the the clearest thing you can look at that that tells you the gay about the gay subtext is that Guy Pierce wants to eat the meat, but he thinks it's wrong. It's morally yes. wrong. That's what it is. And Robert Carlyle's character Calhoun, on the other hand, is just embracing it. He's like, "Why should I be afraid to do what comes naturally to me?" That's the main. That's the major gay subtext of the movie. Is that and and Robert Carlyle saying the line, for example, um, "Morality, the last bastion of a coward," things like that. Like those are. That's the gay subtext. Like the metaphor for the interesting because I, I applied that more to the manifest destiny thing, or like somebody not wanting to, somebody wanting to basically be aggressive and and take over. And not caring at all about what fell in there by the wayside. Like all the people that he eats and kills, they don't matter. They only, the more people he destroys, the more it makes him stronger. Oh, that's true too. That's a good point. Yeah. Just to be clear, no one in this movie is identified or described as homosexual. There's no overt homosexual acts that occur apart from Robert Car Carlyle having an orgasm when he's looking the blood, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm now looking at that scene a whole new way. <laughs> but, but there is, there is a sexual tension between the big two men. Big time. Big yeah, time. Yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll give you that. If this movie is trying to say something about homosexuality and it's using cannibalism as a metaphor, then I can straight up say that this movie is somewhat homophobic because the movie itself rejects cannibalism, right? It's a bad thing, right? Yeah. I think we all agree. Yeah. But it makes them super powerful, so it's not yes. all bad. Let me finish. So, But the thing is you have Robert Carlyle's character who, like Mike said, he embraces it. So he's basically out of the closet. He's like big, proud, I'm queer, I'm here, you know what I mean, type thing. <laughs> and then you have, we could totally remake this movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have Guy Pierce, his character, where he's trying to resist the urge, the temptation, and he wants to feed on his meat, and he wants to lick his wounds, and he wants yes. to lick his blood. Exactly. Totally. So this all happened when he had a bunch of guys stacked on him. Wow, that's, that's a good metaphor too. I missed that one. That's exactly, one. but yeah. that's a thing because the movie starts and he's already fed on the blood of the men at the start of the movie because he pretends to be dead. 
Which he's is already how he escapes. By the way, that's how he gets the courage to 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 take over that uh, encampment or whatever. The strength as well. He gets the strength from yeah. the blood. Yeah. Yes. Which the movie also addresses the idea of courage and having the courage to step out and be who you are and and embrace mm-hmm. your inner gayness. Yes. <laughs> or cannibal. Not even joking. Is a, but but we should we should also mention the myth of the Wendigo. I can't pronounce this. Yes. Wendigo. 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 <laughs> Wendigo. I just have to. I just have to enter a brief aside for that scene when the guy keeps keeps mispronouncing it, and the guy behind him is just like twitching, <laughs> and he finally has to say, "Yes, yes, Johnson. I know I'm mispronouncing it. I'm making a point." <laughs> Listen, if you ever watched supernatural or charmless or the x-files you've heard the myth before it's a very famous native american monster in this case it's not really about the native american monster the the monster is mentioned in the movie and so the idea is that by feeding on human flesh it makes them stronger and powerful and therefore they can survive say for example a fall off a mountain right or a gunshot or a or broken a leg. Or tuberculosis. Uh, or... <laughs> or tuberculosis. I, this is where you brought up the vampire movie. I got strong vampire movie. Uh, Big time. Big time. Well, uh, Patrick, have you ever seen which are, the Vampire? Yeah, which also, those movies tend to have a lot of homosexual um, subtext yeah, to them as it's, well. It's so. pretty much the same relationship. Like yeah. Louis and Lestat, it, their relationship is very similar to the relationship, to the relationship here between uh, John Boyd and... And Cal Calhoun, yeah, Calhoun, who's actually—I mean, if we're gonna—it doesn't matter if we spoil this. Calhoun, who is actually Ives, yes, is, is, is that his name? Yeah, or is Ives actually Calhoun? Who? Oh, that's say? a good question. <laughs> you just blew my mind. <laughs> um, By the way, did anyone mention that David Arquette's in this film? Yeah, uh, it's, it's not very important, really. There's only one, he only has one great scene when uh, it kind well, of is important because he's the dude who decided to bring in the director from Home Alone three, which ended up being a complete train wreck because he was buddy buddy with that director. Well, which yeah, is why um, they cut out a lot of his scenes because everyone on set was pissed off at David Arquette. Apparently, oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. The um, David Arquette is one of several characters in this movie who seem like protagonists of a different film. <laughs> Like, there's him. Neil McDonough is off in his own movie. <laughs> oh, I love his introduction. Being amazing. I, I fucking love Neil Him scre- just screaming in the river. Yes. I think that was what I knew. The character introductions is what I knew I was really going to like this movie. I loved how they handled that. Well, and, and Patrick, I was surprised to hear you say that you didn't like the movie. Because uh, we need to talk about Ted Griffin for he a second. He does like the movie. At one night. Now, the first I time he said he didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, the first time. I mean, you know, I would have been 20 years old when I saw it. So Right. So you were barely even a person. Exactly. Um, the, uh, I, I, it's not just you. I mean, any 20 year old. Um, but Ted, <laughs> Ted Griffin's script um, is so screenwriterly in so many places. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it, it's no surprise. I, this was the first script he ever got produced. But of course, he ended up writing Ocean's Eleven co-creating terriers uh like it's been involved in some really great stuff none of it is remotely similar to ravenous which i find uh, very interesting uh but that that uh that scene you mentioned where we get those quick little character introductions uh is such a such a classic screenwriter move yeah and it's, it's done like very a well anderson move now <laughs> it gives you it gives you like it gives you everybody it tells you basically how who who everybody is when in like two seconds flat for each character to me, it also sets the tone that this is not a straight-up horror movie. It's something quirkier than that. Yeah, it's gonna, there's going to be, obviously, a lighter tone along the way, yeah. 
Yeah, well, which the, um, is important for this movie because it does set itself apart with stuff like that. You don't get too many cannibalism movies that don't t- treat the subject deadly seriously. Uh, according to the writer um, on his commentary track, when he sat down at whatever, whenever it premiered to see the movie, when the quotes come up at the start was the first time he'd ever seen or heard about those quotes because <laughs> they added that afterwards to make clear to people like this is not to be taken too seriously. But this movie goes all over the place. Like there are plot twists. At one point it's like a murder mystery because when they go back to the outpost, there's someone killing everyone, but clearly it's not uh, Robert Carlyle's character because he's in the same room as the character played by Guy Pierce, right? Right. So if like Boyd and Cal, is it Calhoun? Is that how you pronounce it? Calhoun. 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 Yep. Okay. So if Boyd and Calhoun are in the same room, then who's doing the murders it's like this whole big who done it at one point in time and then you know it's like an adventure thriller it's like a backwoods like horror film it's a dark comedy it's there's there's so much going on in this film like and and the ending the ending it's one of the all-time great endings and i was talking to simon about this the other day i'm like it doesn't break the fourth wall like when you know they both land in the bear trap and they're trapped mm-hmm. and Cal Calhoun de- delivers that line. He's like sneaky, right? And it's kind of like I kind of <laughs> I feel like he was that. breaking the fourth. Yeah, he's kind of like breaking the fourth wall, like kind of like uh, nod, nod, wink, wink at the audience, right? But he's not. And I just love the ending. Like I think the ending sort of like summarizes the entire film in terms of like you know we are not taking this movie seriously. This is a satire. It is a dark comedy. It is a horror film. But it's more than just a horror film. It's more than a cannibal film. And also, for a movie about cannibals, usually movies about cannibals are just about people eating people, right? In this movie, he's actually trying to recruit him into his, I guess, into like some sort of like cannibal Cannibal lifestyle. Very Interview with the Vampire. But it's more like Hannibal. It's it's like he's trying to recruit him. Actually, not even because in Hannibal, well, Hannibal tricks people into eating people. But he's. I feel like Hannibal is still trying to recruit Will Graham. And also, Hannibal is sort of like homoerotic too. Big time. Uh, yeah, sort of. the, the TV series you're talking about. As in, like, the greatest TV series ever made. <laughs> Certainly in the conversation, I would agree. Um, I, I think we should just, we got to take a moment because we keep mentioning Robert Carlyle. I think that Robert Carlyle's performance in this movie amazing is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. I love Incredible. I love him in this movie because when he first comes, you totally buy him as this character that he's selling you this made up version of himself that he's selling you. And then when he does the switch, he becomes like a super villain and it's amazing. Like, and every, so many great lines, so many great stupid puns, like the breakfast uh, dinner reinforcements. So many great lines he's got in this movie. And he just, he rel- so annoying. Yes. That one. I, I still say that. I still say that regularly in that tone of voice. So annoying. Don't forget, he was fresh off the heels of the Full Monty, which was a huge hit back yeah. in the days, and Train Spotting, mm-hmm. and Priest, and he was also in Face. So two movies directed by Antonio Bird. So he was on a he was on a hot streak. And also, like I think part of the reason that his performance is so fucking good is because you know he was the one who brought on Antonio Bird, thus saving the film. Clearly, definitely. Have you seen uh, Face? I have not seen Phase. Oh, uh, it's so good. I haven't seen all of her films. I've seen Mad Love, which is not very good with no. Drew Barrymore. <laughs> it is but uh, Phase is a... Too. Yeah, yeah. I actually watched it last night, to be honest. Um, if, if but Phase is a really good movie. If you watch Carlisle talking about the filming, um, and I, I, I think this is why he's he 
both is and had to be so good. You know, he talks about the first the first scene they shot is when Colhoun comes in from the cold and they're warming him up and um, she gets on set and they've never met her before. And she's just like, OK, go. And they're like, what? <laughs> like they don't they don't understand her style. Her She's you know, she's coming from Britain. They're all Americans. So he he ended up kind of being the bridge at first, at least between the director and the actors. And then eventually, I'm sure, I'm sure she she uh, she found her found her wings quickly enough. And I think that meant he really, really had to be on point. And uh, he is. Is it true that this movie was partially based or inspired by an actual true story that took place in Canada in which someone killed his whole entire family, traveled to a different town, told everyone this crazy story, brought them back to his his house, which I think he and his family lived on a farm, and then tried to proceed to kill everybody so he could eat them. Yeah, that was my dad. <laughs> well, it's not... Not necessarily that, but I mean, there are those stories, like if you're a true crime head, especially if you look into like the older, like the, that, that period, there are lots of stories like this of people who would lure people to um, houses or inns or farms and then murder them for, you know, for meat or for their belongings or for whatever. For meat. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously the Donner Party is, plays a big part of this, yeah. too. Mike, you brought that up. Like, that that's a big inspiration. Crossing the mountains, getting trapped, being forced to eat people. What are the sort of the horrors that could come from that? Um, it, it's also funny because it results in a press tour where Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle are constantly asked by entertainment reporters, how do you feel about cannibalism? Would you eat people? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this little bit of trivia, but Guy Pierce is a vegetarian or a vegan, one of the two. Ooh, that, so that apparently fits. on set, yeah, on set, he was apparently like nauseous the whole entire time. Well, he looks like it. I would say that Guy Pierce, who I really liked, probably turns in the worst performance in this movie. He's just kind of dead. Well, to be I, fair, he only gets to speak about 25 minutes into the film. His character is not exactly the greatest. They don't they don't really give him any great character moments like they do with every other character he doesn't get good dialogue he's just sort of has a blank stare most of the time it's an unfortunate i mean guy pierce is a talented actor so i'm not going to say that he blew it but i don't think he really had a whole lot to work with no he didn't they just um, don't give his character his character is what he what you would call i guess the audience surrogate he's kind of just there to observe and say what the audience would say in a lot of situations ask the questions that need to be answered for the story to continue a lot of He's the Brad Pitt. I mean, Brad Pitt was so boring in that movie. <laughs> but, There's but... so many similarities to this movie and Interview to Vampire based on their performances. I totally agree. He is the Brad Pitt of this film. But also, isn't this just kind of the performance that Guy Pierce is often asked to give, where he's just like the kind of handsome guy with no real past uh, who just kind of ambles through the story like Memento uh, and probably some other movies I'm forgetting about? But he's at least given more to do in Memento. He's given different. He's given a range of, of things to do. Even though, but you're right. He he did play a lot of that sort of I don't and, know what's going on here character. And it's also quite ballsy that like his only real character trait for like the first uh, 45 minutes at least is that he's a coward. Yep. Right. You know. You know what, Simon? Watching this movie, I could not help but think of. Uh, the movie, um, oh my God, what's it called again? Don't Look Now. Mm. And after doing some research, I realized it's the same cinematographer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and there's one specific scene 
when Guy Pierce's character is walking back to the outpost after he falls down the mountain, and they have this beautiful, like, far shot of him walking through or walking by the mountains. So he looks so, so, so small in the shot, right? Because it's, it's like a far shot, right? So you see the mountains in the background, mm -hmm. you see him walking, and he's dressed in red, and he's walking across the snowy mountains. And I just could not help but think of that cinematographer, and sure enough, it was him. That's like a beautiful shot. Yeah, sorry. We just need to have a brief aside about how great that moment is in the movie. That is, that is like, if you make it to that point in the movie, then there's no way you're going to turn it off. Because that the moment which, when Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce are on the edge of the cliff, and Guy Pierce is the only survivor of, of his group, and Robert Carlyle's just looking at him like a fucking lunatic. <laughs> can, can I ask a question about that scene? He has a gun. And I know Calhoun has superpowers, but he has a gun and he jumps off the cliff. So when he jumps off the cliff, does he actually think he has a chance to survive? Or is it because he's a coward and he's like, I'd rather die jumping off a cliff than, be than being eaten alive by this crazy man? Essentially, I think it's, 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 it's like that. It's like, I could die if I jump off the cliff. I'm definitely going to die if I stay here and it's going to be a horrible death. So let's just see what happens. Yeah, I saw it is him killing himself, essentially. Yeah, like, not expecting to live through this, but just happens to. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't make a jump like that thinking you're going to live. <laughs> right, right. That, that's what I just wanted to clarify that. Um, can we also just quickly talk about Jeremy Davies? Because I actually really like this guy. He was in Lost. Saving Private Ryan. Justified and, and Lost. But anyways, I, I like him in this movie because one of my favorite scenes is when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's screaming. And he's like, he lit he licked me because like what's his face was like Calhoun was licking his wounds I woke up and my lips were on his, his wound <laughs> <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong he's the only religious character in the film or at least the only yeah. character who's who is shown to be religious because I think he's the one who says grace before yeah. eating the meal he's yep. the one who carries a cross he's such a funny he's such a great actor Jeremy Davies when he's trying to write that um He's trying to write that. What? What would he? Uh, that new hymn. Yeah. The new hymn. When he's trying to write the hymn, holy crap! Just him muttering under his breath this whole movie is so funny, man. I, I mean, Jeremy Davies tends to get, and he look. Jeremy Davies is one of the most typecast actors ever in that he tends to play the weird really guy, jittery, really <laughs> yeah. jittery guys Richie, who aren't yeah. who aren't just weird. They're a little slow, um, like most of the time, not all the time. Uh, and but the other thing about him is that if you need to cast someone to a whimper and b shriek like a demented banshee <laughs> when he is licked, uh, Jeremy Davies is your man. Oh. Right. You, you know the joke about how hard it is for a cannibal to make friends. Now I know where it came from. Yeah, or at least I think I think it came from this movie, right? Because because what's his face? Calhoun is basically a morbid punchline for that joke. Yes. <laughs> oh, by the way, we can't we can't go any further without mentioning um, the the sta the, the studio mandated pedophile Jeffrey uh, Jones. To be, <laughs> yeah, they, they need to have one up. on every film, and uh, boy, Jeffrey Jones sure fits the bill. He's great in this movie, but you know we have to note that. Also. Yes, we have to note that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's sort of notable. Well, he's hungry for a certain type of flesh that I think we can all agree. No, he no, <laughs> no. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. I, too far, too far. <laughs> What's what about his character though? So I, there, his character ends up coming back. I mean, again, forget spoilers. This is a plot twist. Year old movie. Yeah, plot twist. 
did that work for you guys? Did that? Oh work my god, you? yes, yes, because okay. it was so out of nowhere, so silly, and be- but because the movie was what it what it is, like it's a mix of genres. It's it's tonally all over the place. It's just bizarre. It's unique, which I love. I felt that it actually worked in this movie. And I love the way he opens the door, like the door swings open slowly. It's like, it's like, again, it turns into this, like who done it? Like, Oh, God. and the the editing and scoring of that whole little run up sequence where they're getting ready to show you who's at the door is so delightful. But, but, but there's there's two two big reveals in the movie. There's that in which I agree the editing is amazing. But then the first big reveal when we get to the cave and we kind of already suspect that this dude is not who he says he is. Right. Yes. But we get to the cave and the editing, the way they cut between all like seven I think there's like seven people in the cast at that point in time and you get the different reactions and what's going on. And then we get the big reveal. They go into the cave and there's not one, not two, but like five dead bodies. And that is when they realize it's a trap. So the two big reveals are incredibly well staged and the editing Mm. is like top notch. But do you think that it makes sense for, of all the characters, so I was happy to see Jeffrey Jones because I was happy to have some of the, one of those characters come back from early in the movie because they all are very distinct. They're all very quirky and they're all very fun. Um, They all get killed off. And I thought the movie was going to lose a lot of steam when that happened. It didn't, but I was still happy to see one of them come back. But did it work for the Jeffrey Jones character to come back? I think he's the only option though, because like, the sorry, I can I cannot remember his name, but the Native American. What was his name again? I thought it was George. George, George, right? There was no way Which, he would ever want to be a cannibal. Hang on, like, if you want to talk about the manifest destiny, the two Native American characters are named George and Martha. Yeah, the Washingtons. Although Ooh. George Washington wasn't really a manifest destiny guy. That was more of a that was, that came kind of after him. He wasn't so much. But it's a no Western those Indian. names can't be an accident, right? Oh, not at all. Not at all. No. I love Martha. She's my favorite character in the film. I, I love, love how, how she just leaves at the end. She looks at him, stares at him. They're, they are both trapped in the bear trap. She just closes the door and walks away. Yeah, she's like, well, it's this. sort of like a, it's sort of like, a, you know, usually it, it's kind of nice that like, I guess the, the movie's woman of color gets to just kind of peace out for most of the movie and then just come back right at the end. She has a small minor part in the film, but she plays a crucial role because she's very I memorable. think. I know, but I think she is the character who inspires or helps, not inspire, but helps um, helps Floyd, a boy, sorry, helps Boyd accept who he has become. She also tells him he has to kill himself. Exactly. Like, that's, that's the thing. Like, she says, like... Like a werewolf. You have... The only way to get rid of it is to just kill yourself and yeah, or die. She's, she's sort of like Danny Aiello in Jacob's Ladder kind of ushering him into the at, at the end there kind of ushering him on his way well She's the me, voice of doom and again again you can see like sort of a metaphor there with her with her leaving it's like just leave the white people to kill each other because that's what they do right or the men the men yeah either either or yeah yeah either or really like the, yeah. Euro, the europeans you know and she's a it, it, that she's first nations has like precedent there because she leaves them to die together also, she's the only woman and apparently this is about gay dudes so she's like i'm out of here yeah (laughs) (laughs) but the last thing i want to say before we go to break which we really have to do is every time i saw neil mcdonough on screen i i could not uh i i kept thinking back to a scene in justified uh he played the big bad for a season and at some point uh raylan givens is looking for him and a witness describes him as husky looking you mean like he was heavy set and she says no like he looked like a husky (laughs) 
which is perfect. And I kept thinking about that. Those eyes. He was the perfect soldier. So it, 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 he's he would kind of break that whole. They sent all the black sheep out there because I didn't. I saw him as being the model soldier. Yeah, but like maybe kind him. of a little bit of a psycho also. Maybe too, oh, clearly <laughs> <laughs> he was clearly too into it. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Then this this is one of those movies that you could just probably talk all day about, but uh, we're not going to be able to do that. Instead, we're going to come back with our five questions in a little bit. But here's another clip from Ravenous. Bourbon break. Rest stop. What's up? Good. Right? Mr. Calhoun. Uh, you, he said that when you ate the man. Uh, do, you, do you mind if I ask? You said that afterwards your your hunger was different, that you felt wanton. Yes. Did you feel it all physically changed? Stronger? I seem to remember something like that. A certain virility. Why do you ask? All right, that was another clip from Ravenous. Uh, we've reached the point of the podcast where we ask our five questions. There are four of us here today, so we're probably going to streamline this a little bit. If people have the same answers, we're going to you know, just sort of set them aside. Uh, but, Mike, you're the guest here, so we're going to ask you first. We're going to give you first crack at this. What is your favorite scene from Ravenous? Oh, there are so many good scenes in the movie, but it has to be the ending. The ending is so amazing. The The, the big fight scene between the two superhuman cannibals at the end... <laughs> fucking incredible move incredible scene man just just watching these guys get brutalized and every time and it's like oh he, he's probably dead now right and then they just keep going and they keep getting up and it's just and uh calhoun's slash ives turn as the full-on villain painting the bloody cross on his forehead and everything holy cow and that score the score is so good I also choose the final scene. I, I love how he basically turns to Boyd and he's like, I guess whoever is going to die last is going to eat the other person. But then we have Martha walk in and she sort of convinces Boyd that, you know, he's got to die in order to just end his curse because there's no way he can keep living a life and not I want to create like human I flesh. I think he's decided once he puts the bear trap on the ground. Like when he looks at the wall and sees the bear trap and that look on his face, I think he's made the decision right there. In terms of like even camera work, I love the shot of Martha through the door because I think the door has a few holes in it. I don't know. I think it's like, I don't know if it's like an axe that went through the door or whatever, but there's specific holes in the door. So you see her peeking through the hole. And then you have the beautiful bird's eye view of the two men trapped in the bear trap. Yeah. And the camera dollies out into the sky and the movie ends and i just love the ending um simon what about you i'm gonna go with uh, a scene that was mentioned in passing but uh surprisingly not more which is the uh the scene uh the mostly what's going on outside the cave when we get that first reveal um of the of of neil mcdonough finds all those corpses and then uh you have 
this see this seemingly never ending sequence of suspense where you're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and not helping you figure out what the fuck is going on is Robert Carlyle, who is like he's standing with his fingers out like he's Voldemort or something. <laughs> and he starts going like, <laughs> yeah. And then grinding and then grinding and digging into the ground like a fucking dog. Yeah. It's like he's in a trance almost. Uh, and it's like, it's totally ambiguous as to like, is something really happening or is he just very elaborately fucking with them, which is how I, and the music, uh, I take the it. music and the, Oh, the music is insane. It's so uh, fucking, it's building up to this heavy, heavy moment. And you're like, what's going to happen? Because you can just feel your pulse racing because you know, yeah. But like, like you said, you're, it's so fucking bewildering. You're like, what the fuck is this guy doing, man? Yeah, and also at that point, you're like 45 minutes in, the movie has has cycled through about six different genres, and you still don't really know what the movie is about. Like, what are the stakes? Who is the villain? Who is the hero? What is the conflict? Like, that stuff doesn't even become clear until, I, I'd say, at least halfway through. I don't understand why he buried his knife so deep into the ground that it took him like 20 minutes to, to dig it up before he actually had the knife ready to kill everybody. The scent of blood. But his performance in this in this specific scene is insane. It's insane. It's like, he looks like a wild dog, just gone crazy, like a that rabid was, dog. That was what I was expecting because if you don't hire Robert Carlyle for your movie, unless you want a scene where he goes completely over the top, yeah. um, so that I was I was waiting for it. It came. Uh, I was also going to pick that scene. Simon. Great, I great the, choice. The cross cutting. Great choice. Um, yeah, I just think that that's there. There's your suspense. Like that's one of your big suspenseful scenes. Like what is going on? That would have been and my you second. You know choice, what's yeah. happening. You know they're gonna find the bodies down there. That's all. Like you can tell that's gonna happen. And this the big twist is that Carlisle's the gonna be the bad guy. I didn't actually see him as Ives for some reason. That kind of fooled me later on. But well, we're forgetting the best part of that scene. Okay, first of all, Antonio Bird knows how to direct action. It's yes. incredible. Like the despite the fact that they they do do rapid fire cuts in editing, the direction is it's like the scene is so well staged and so well directed. You know exactly where everyone is, and it all mm -hmm. makes sense. Unlike a Michael Bay film, but do you remember how to how it's not how the scene ends, but it, at one point the hillbilly chase when, music. No, you, oh. no, before <laughs> the music, before the music, he points the gun at Jeremy Davies. Yes. And he fires, but he's out of bullets. Yes. And I just love his expression. And again, the dark humor kicks in, and that's it's just such a great moment. And then he just goes, run. <laughs> Which, by the way, I took the banjo music as a deliverance reference. Well, who knows? I don't know I just, if it was reference or not, but we'll it's just funny chase music. music. It's really it funny. It is also very funny chase music. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, all right. So if there was one thing that you could change about Ravenous Mike, what would it be? Oh, gosh. You could probably just get David Arquette out of there. Or I guess, honestly, uh, well, see, you could you could hum and ha because we we know Jeffrey Jones is a scumbag, but he does do a good performance in this movie. So who's to say? Would that make the movie better or not? I don't know. But I guess David Arquette probably. Let's get... Because like I said, David Arquette only has one moment where he where I think he does a good job in this movie. And otherwise, he's just sort of a distraction because you're expecting it to turn into a David Arquette movie at some point, and it just never does. So, did you see the trailer I was telling you about? Where the stoner one? Trailer? No, I didn't. I didn't see that. No, 
It's like one of the original trailers. They cut it up so it looks like a stoner comedy. That's really stupid. It I mean, stoners so would weird. probably like this movie, though. Like, oh, which probably explains why the movie only made a million dollars opening weekend, two million total at the box office, and it cost twelve million dollars to make. Cannibalism movies are a tough sell. I'm amazed that they committed $12 million to this movie in the first place. <laughs> yeah, Fox was weirdly committed to getting this movie made. Uh, somebody somebody knew that it was like, this is a good, great idea. Like probably somebody went into that and did the pitch and was talking about all the subtext. And then somebody was like, sign me up. Yeah, except that as soon as you brought up the word cannibal, you'd think that those executives would be like, nope, I'm out, we're out. <laughs> uh, they just don't make a whole lot of cannibal movies unless they're super inspirational, like Alive is, you know, which also at the time was controversial, but at least it's an inspiration. Well, right? Texas Chainsaw Massacre is also a very inspirational movie. But it's super <laughs> low budget, not yeah. made by Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> by the way, I watched this movie on Disney+. Plus. And then when the movie ended, which is, yeah. And then when the movie ended, it recommended I watch Alive. Like, what year am I living in where I can watch two cannibal movies on Disney Plus? I didn't, that movie's not available on Disney Plus to uh, Americans, just to let you know. Because I saw that you had written that and I looked it up, tried to look it up on Disney Plus and I cannot get it on Disney Plus. I'm not surprised that it suggested Alive because there's probably only like two movies on all of Disney Plus that have the the the, 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 the SEO tag cannibal. Or yeah. Oh my god, there's plenty of cannibal movies on Disney Plus, man. Is there? <laughs> I live in Canada, you'll see them all. <laughs> We're like messed up here. Okay, so what I would change, okay, Patrick, is yes. you guys are going to totally disagree, but I do not like the banjo music. There's only two scenes in which I don't like the music because I don't think the music fits no matter what you guys say, and the banjo music playing with the chase scene, it, feel, it, it feels like, what was that TV show, Billy Hills, Billy... Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, what? Beverly Hillbillies. Yes, that that show. That's what it felt like. Well, this is this is the gold rush in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, like like the I Beverly Hillbillies. Didn't have that kind of music back then. <laughs> I think I think it's great. I think that that instance. I think it works because I think you're supposed to be kind of laughing at poor Jeremy Davies being chased through the woods. I'm going to save my comments on that until the next question. <laughs> but uh, Simon, would is there anything you would change? I guess I, if I was, I'll answer my question now and cut you off, Simon. Um, I would rewrite, not rewrite, but I, you need to add something to Guy Pierce's character to Boyd. There's just got to be a little bit more. Um, outside of that, though, the the bringing bringing back Jeffrey Jones's character only to, to summarily kill him off minutes later feels like they cut something out there. Like, I, I don't really, it, it almost, he got brought back and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, this is a big twist. And then he just chooses to have Boyd kill him. Like, minutes later. That, to me, felt weird. That no, that facilitates, see, the purpose that facilitates is how Guy Pierce can get can get out of his captive captivity. I know, but it's that feels too contrived. Why bring that character back? Why would he choose to eat people in order to recover, in order to live, right? To survive. You're assuming that he's doing this because that's the only way he's going to live, only to then immediately turn around and say, "Kill me." I think I think it kind of shows that not everybody can do what what Ives can do. Not everybody can just disregard their humanity and become a cannibal in order to become like superhuman. Sometimes you need to be bi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it just didn't show like Jeffrey Jones' character didn't show me that, Mike. I think that's what it was. He he never go, undergoes some. Yeah, maybe kind of they could maybe they could have added another five ten minutes to the movie of that little interval when he's back. It felt like they brought him back just to have a, a twist as to like who was the second killer, and then immediately they're like, okay, we need to get rid of him. So wait, I so think just, I misunderstood Patrick. So you're saying you don't like the scene in which Jeffrey Jones decides that he wants to die. I, I thought it was too abrupt. I don't I didn't think it fit was happening. I agree, I agree, I agree. I, that should have been my pick. I actually was thinking about that last night. I completely forgot that's what I want to change too. Yeah, that's a solid choice. The the thing that I would change is um I would just I just want more. Like as I was as I was uh listening to the the commentary track with Antonia Bird, um she's describing all sorts of stuff that was written but not filmed or that they, that they tried to do but didn't have the budget for or would have done but couldn't logistically pull off or had to change because of the weather. And really all I would change is just give them another $8 million to go back and do all the fucking reshoots they want and get it all in there because they like the more of that filmmaking team uh, working on this story, I think the better. Like uh, One example, I could give you loads of examples, but one, one great one is that according to Antonia and Ted... Um, in the the original version of the sequence where they're sort of chasing uh, Robert Carlyle through the woods, he was originally supposed to be in the trees. Like he was supposed to be jumping around like a fu- like a literal fucking vampire up there. Sweet, uh, <laughs> that would be pretty sweet. And, and like you can't tell me that wouldn't have been fucking dope. That would be pretty <laughs> sweet. Yeah, I like how you're on first name basis with these people. Well, it's just because I yeah I listened to a conversation with them. Um, you know for the for the commentary. Yeah, me and Antonia. She was well. That's that's that that's pandemic brain, right? Like, if I hear a person talking on the computer, I think they're my friend. <laughs> I agree. An eight million dollar sex scene would make this movie way better. Hell yeah! <laughs> sure, a twenty million dollar cannibal movie. Hollywood just lining up for that. Hey, I mean, let's I, let's I, cross I, some let's cross some more genres. We can cross Ravenous with Brokeback Mountain, and let's just get it done. And, and frankly. <laughs> it, 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 if I was the producer at Fox and I strong armed them into giving them eight million dollars for reshoots, I would have definitely, I would have, yes, I would have added more to the Jeffrey Jones character um, to to sort of flesh out uh, that heel turn or non heel turn or whatever. Nice pun. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that the, originally they were going to do a lot more stuff with uh, like there was the the battle stuff in Mexico was going to be a lot bigger, and I think it actually would have been fun to have like uh, a little bit more of a historical epic scope to this. Mm-hmm. But that would have required more money. And by the way, uh, they stretched the hell out of that twelve million dollars because I know that the, the the movie is not everything that they envisioned. But uh, they they got a lot of great fucking shit in there. They did, and it looks great. By the way, like this is as I was watching this movie. One of the things I was thinking was good. God, it's good to be watching a movie again. Something that looks cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's shot shot fantastic. Um, which brings us to our next question. MVP, Mike. Who is the MVP? We already—I I think we got a hint of yours. It's but, Robert uh, Kyle, Robert Carlyle, and his crazy eyes. That is what. That's why you cast Robert Carlyle. There's the, no question. The, those those wide-eyed, insane looks he gives people in the movie, man. He doesn't even need to be talking. And like like Simon said, those fucking grunts he does in that one scene. Like he is unhinged in this movie. He's a maniac, and I love it. I'm on the same page with Mike. My answer is also uh, Robert Carlyle. And like the, the facial expressions, the the wide eyes, like you're saying, the scene when he completely goes berserk and is like a rabid dog digging the, in, into the ground looking for his knife. 
the action sequences, the way he delivers the the dialogue, like the one line, the way he you torments, the way he torments uh, Calhoun, very much like Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham type relationship, where he's very he's tormenting him, like, come on, I know you want to do it, I know who you are, come on. Oh, it's just, he's an incredible performance. I'm convinced he wants to sleep with Guy Pierce. Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Who's to say what happened in those back backlot trailers? Well, they ended up together. In the bear trap? In a bear, yeah. in a bear trap. Oh, I thought you meant in real life. I was like, what? Oh, and that's, that's <laughs> Patrick, again, when you were asking about the gay subtext, there's the clearest gay subtext in the movie. Them oh, I told In missionary I position. I can spot a million things when you since you brought it up. Yeah, but the missionary position—they're literally face to face, like lovers. I I never I never noticed sexual t- uh, subtext. By the way, this is like something. So, that in I, the future, whenever touch. there's a movie with homoerotic like subtext, can we place bets to decide if uh, we think Patrick Patrick's going to clue in or not? <laughs> I, I yeah, but it's going to be great because at some point we're gonna he's going to start just assuming that every movie every has movie. it. Uh, and we're just gonna be like, "What the fuck are you talking yeah. about?" Yeah, they'll be asking us about the gay subtext of Star Wars, and we'll be like, "Uh." uh. <laughs> yeah, you saw the way Han and Luke looked at each other. Oh yeah. Um, all right, Simon, <laughs> who's your MVP? It's got to be Antonio Bird. I mean, the, my case against Robert Carlyle is as amazing as he is in this movie. There are other actors who could have pulled it off. Like actually quite a lot of other actors who could have pulled it off. Uh, would they have been exactly as good or exactly the same? Probably not, but it's not like the most unique performance in the world. It's just insanely fun. Um, whereas I think what Antonia Bird brought to this movie is singular. I mean, I, we, we keep saying it. This is like no other movie, and she she is responsible ultimately for that. Um, in fact, I would I would say if I had a runner-up, it would have to be Ted Griffin. Uh, because like this is su- this is an original screenplay. It's so inventive. It's so full of ideas. Uh, it's so fun. It's so original. And uh, it's they they don't make them like that anymore. I have a question. How much of the movie was already shot before she walked on set? Um, I think they were only a couple weeks into filming. They I don't think they kept anything. No. Um, uh, that was not directed by Antonia Bird. Yeah, not from what I read. And they rejected the other director before he even really got a chance to. The cast rejected it before he really got a chance to do it. Good. Anything, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is this movie is the rare movie. It's a team effort to me. Uh, this is there are contributions from everywhere. But uh, uh, if I have to give an MVP, I am honestly giving it to Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn. Ooh. I think that this the com- the the music makes this movie what it is. It's a ultimately. solid choice. More more so than any one other element. If I remove the music, this becomes an entirely different movie. I could remove a cast member and replace them. I could replace the director. I think, and you could possibly end up with a similarly quirky, like fun movie. Um, I gotta go with the score. I've never seen a score that uh, I shouldn't say that, but I haven't seen a score in a long time that I felt affected a movie this much, and I loved it. I thought the score was brilliant. In Ex- every... Excuse me, Patrick. You can't see a score; you can hear it. <laughs> Just pointing that out. <laughs> that, yeah, that, I can't. One... I'm not like uh, musically literate enough to articulate exactly why. I I'm just being score. pretentious for fun. Go on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm just saying that right now. Like, I can't really explain why, but that is to me. I, it's rare now that I watch a movie and I think about the score because I, I honestly don't think that scores are very good in, in movies these days. Um, 
this one is. <laughs> the, my, my, my quick, my very quick response to that, which I know we're not supposed to be doing crosstalk. Make it quick. Questions, I will make it very quick, is that um, I really cannot impress enough upon people uh, how big a deal it is that she took on this movie with a week of prep. That's insane. Like, that's that's a tiny little fraction of the amount of prep time directors would normally have. And this is a complicated movie to shoot in multiple countries uh, in difficult terrain with gross content. Like, And, and given, given the on. fact that she directed Priest, I'm pretty sure it was her idea to add the homosexual subtext and possibly any subtext into the movie. I'm not sure if it was there in the actual original screenplay. Uh, she did. She say. did a fantastic job, and and you know, I, I immediately was looking up her resume as soon as uh, as soon as this movie was over. I wanted to see what else she had done because I do think that this was directed amazingly. But I am going to have to go. But it, I have to pick an MVP. They're all talented mm-hmm. players on this team, but uh, I could only go with one. Well, she passed away, which is why she only directed five movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing that. That's a bummer. It's interesting. Um, there's very you very rarely see women directing um, horror movies, especially back then. But Mary Heron did American Psycho just like a year before this, and that was also an incredible movie. Uh, Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Come on. They were doing this back in the fifties, Mike. Oh, fair, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> not very often. No, not very often. No, they, they weren't. I was trying to pull out like the only example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I actually think that the very same year there was also a horror film which had a nightmare of it was a nightmare making the movie, so they had to bring in a new director, which also ended up being a female director, and that was the Rage Carry Two. Not oh, a yes, good movie. That's right. All right. We can go. We can go quick with this one. Uh, Howard Hawks test. Does it pass? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No question. Yep. No bad scenes. Well, for anyone who does not know, can we finish the question? Oh, sure. <laughs> the Howard Hawks test is a a great movie is comprised of three great scenes, at least three great scenes, and no bad ones. So, yep. does this movie pass? We got a yes, yes. Rick, what about you? Yes, three great scenes, no bad scenes. I would say four great scenes. I would say, yeah, I, like four or five great scenes. I'm with scenes. you on that one, too. There's not a bad scene in the movie, and yes, there are, there are at least three, maybe four great scenes. Mm-hmm. Scenes that you will remember. What, but, but, Mike, when I say great, I'm, I'm thinking, like, iconic. Like, when you see the still image of that scene, you right away know it's ravenous. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like the bear trap. Yep. Or when somebody brings up, says the name ravenous, you will immediately flash to a specific scene. Or when someone right. makes a cannibal pun of some kind. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we haven't. We, uh, that also just makes me want to quickly mention: there's no meat, uh, ironically, on this movie. It's like, or rather, there's no fat on the movie. It's, it's very it's, lean. It's very lean. Uh, would not be fun to eat. A good cut. Very... A good cut. One might say. <laughs> yeah, it's not very. It's a little stringy, though. It's a little gamey. <laughs> At the end of the film, when the dude eats the stew, does that mean he's going to absorb the yes, supernatural that's... powers? Yep, it, yeah, the, yes, the curse. It does. The curse. Uh, unfortunately, Guy, uh, Guy Ritchie's uh, Guy Ritchie Guy Pierce's sacrifice was in vain. And another yes, military. It's another military on. guy eating it. So again, that's the manifest destiny subtext. Like. There's a military guy shows up, eats the stew. Now he's got the lust for blood. You just galaxy brained me, Mike. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this movie did, as we've already mentioned, it did terrible at the box office, Very which bad. is no surprise because it was a cannibal movie set in the 1840s. Um, starring back then, relative unknowns as far as the American actors go. Guy Pierce was, was kind of new on the scene. He wasn't really big at the time. Carlisle had a couple of hits, but still, you know, one of them was an indie hit in Train Spotting, and uh, really the full Monty was. The critics would know him, but the audiences wouldn't. Uh, yeah. 
So, I mean, maybe The Full Monty was a popular movie and made a lot of money, and so some American audiences would have recognized his face, but completely different kind of movie, like going from English Village comedy to... And he looks cannibal, totally cannibal different in this Mexican movie. He doesn't American look work. anything like how he looks in Full Monty. The thing is, no. you guys are forgetting that Guy Pierce was in L.A. Confidential two years prior, which oh, was nominated for a bunch of awards. That's true. Yeah, yeah, but most people talked about Russell Crowe from that movie. He was also in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Believe me, he was a huge star. Well, I mean, but but most American audiences had not seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert either. Like, I, I, would not, I wouldn't say Guy Pierce was ever a huge star. Guy Pierce is always sort of, at his peak, he was, he was flirting with stardom. But he never really he his his choices for movies were a little too off. I think like he, you know he had been he's been in some cool stuff. Memento, Have you the, seen the Priscilla Queen of the Desert? It's a great movie. Yeah, yeah but, but it wasn't. Guy, it was Guy like Pierce a box is office. never. Yeah, Guy Pierce is just never the thing that is most memorable about your. Movie. He's never. Yeah, no. He, no. he got close, like Patrick said. He got close to being a big star at one point. Like early two thousands is probably his the height of his career, but he was never a household name or anything. He was good in Animal Kingdom. He was good in The Hurt Locker. He's done some yeah. good stuff he's, since. He's very I, good. I think he's a good actor. He was I mean, good I in like Iron him. Man 3. The Proposition? Yeah. He was. The yes. Proposition? He was oh, amazing we, in that movie. I love that movie. Oh, I, I, yes. Actually, but, um, my, that that's the movie that I recommended to my viewing partner as the next thing we watch. Uh, good pick. No no fun and games in that one, though. Just Nope. But again, it's like Australian Western. Not too many people saw it. Mm-hmm. No, but he was in Memento. He was in Rules of Engagement. He was in First Snow. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, he's one of those actors who a lot of people think he's boring. But I don't, I don't, I think it's more, more so the characters he's, uh, he plays. I like him. I, I'm not saying he's boring. I, I'm the exact opposite. I like, ever since Memento, I liked Guy Pierce, but. I, I, he's just not, you know, this is a movie. It's not surprising that the movie didn't make a lot of money because audiences wouldn't have had really any idea who Guy Pierce was at this point. He, Did, yeah, but they also had no clue how to market the movie. Audiences yeah. never really had any idea who Guy Pierce was. I would was not have wanted... <laughs> the Time Machine was like his one big, I'm a massive Hollywood star, and it, it also tanked. Ooh, that's a bad movie. I would not have wanted to be in Vox's marketing department, honestly, for this one. No. <laughs> No, they're like, like what how are the we... fuck do you market this movie? We do have to tell people there's cannibalism in it, but we gotta do that in the least like repulsive way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think their best option would have been to sell the movie as being absolutely batshit insane because it is. Mm-hmm. So the question, of course, that leads into how do you sell this movie going forward? Do you think this movie gets watched? Do you think it maintains oh, yeah. its cult? I think it's built up Hell a cult yes. following over the years, big, big time, especially since the internet has become more popularized. Like I think through word of mouth on the internet is how a lot of people found out about this movie. Yes. And you know what, Mike, I've said this so many times on a podcast where I used to go to the, uh, the video, the, the video store, rent the movie, and I would rent it based on the cover of the movie. Right. Like I would not know who the director is or the actor is, but there's so many times I went to the store, like the video store, and I was thinking about renting Ravenous, and I never ever rented it because it just looked garbage. It looked like the kind of movie that just I just not want to watch. And it was only later in life because of the internet that I actually decided to watch it. Yeah, totally the cover great. the cover is a totally forgettable. It's just like two guys standing in the darkness on the cover. And one of them is like in the shape of a knife print or something, and that's the whole cover. Like it's not. There's nothing. If you if you in the horror section, there's nothing that stands out about that cover that's going to make you go, "Ooh, I got to see this movie" or anything. Really, the cover should have just been a pot of stew. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
you know, guess who's coming to dinner? It could have been something. The, the tagline yeah. or something. Um, oh yeah, I, I see the cover now. It's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty unremarkable. And then there, the cover they switched it to years later was just teeth. Was just um, an open right. mouth yeah. with teeth. So they, it looks like Rocky Horror. Actually, both of the covers are pretty bad. So Rick, you had talked way back in the beginning of the podcast about this being a hard movie to recommend, and that's why I wonder. You know, okay, the internet's out there, and it. May, might maintain a cultish following can this movie like could it catch on with a wider audience or do you think it really is that because my, my impression i wanted to get to this back then is i think this is a movie that honestly this is the cannibalism movie for everybody for the masses i honestly think that they can anybody can watch this movie and be entertained i think it's just weird enough it's got a little bit of everything for everybody i agree if you could stick around to the end of the film like i'm telling you I could see a lot of people checking out within the first 20 minutes of this movie. But what's so boring about the first 20 minutes? It's, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying, I love this movie. I love this movie. But you got to understand, when it comes to the masses, a lot of people do not want to watch movies of this period, this time period, like the 1847, about this specific subject matter. I mean, the movie opens with a bunch of like old white dudes wearing like weird uniforms, sitting around a table eating for like, Everybody's got a steak and nothing else, by the way, which is hilarious. They all only have steak and no trimmings whatsoever. I think just... there's a couple potatoes. So you don't think it's going to be hard to recommend a new generation to sit through the first 20 minutes of this film when the first 5, 10 minutes is just people eating? Well, it looks weird. It's shot in a great way. But we I, are I mean, movie buffs. I'm talking about the masses, though. No, but it look, that's what I mean. This movie visually is appealing. I, I think that anybody can get through the first 20 minutes. The subject matter is one thing, but it's shot and acted in such an Appealing way from the perspective and, and of written. a movie you buff. No, no. You, you, my, part... my opinion as a movie buff is that this is a general audience picture. I think that anybody can watch this. I think the music cue, like I said, that if you get if you get even through the first five minutes to that musical cue when he's walking across um, the the snowy the snowy meadow, that is like the flavor of the movie is already kicking in. If you can make it to the part where, where Calhoun's doing his his story of what supposedly occurred in the mountains then i think you're hooked at that point like if you've made it that far then you're that's what i'm saying but that's 20 minutes into the film mike yeah i mean that there's there's certainly some yeah there's certainly some validity to what you're saying because it starts off them eating at the table at the beginning and then him puking and that's when the title card comes up too i can see that turning people off maybe i'm telling you i'm watching it right now as we speak (laughs) i can see a lot of people turning this the title card coming up as he vomits on camera See, I can't. I don't think it has such a like languid pace that it's gonna, you know. No, it just might be too weird. I think what Rick is saying is it just might be too weird for some people. I don't think it is. Put it to the test. Recommend it to people you know who are just. I am going to tell my my mother to watch my grandmother (laughs) to watch this movie, and I I bet my grandma, my ninety two year old grandmother can watch this movie and be entertained. I'm thinking more, more about the new generation, not the you older just, generation. You just missed the opportunity with Easter, too. She, she's more Would have been a great Easter movie. That your thing? <laughs> <laughs> the older generations are way, way more okay with eating. Dude, I'm watching this scene now. I'm telling you, so many people would tune out. There's all these dudes sitting around a table. They're wearing weird uniforms, and it's just close-ups of them eating meat. meat all right, that's meat. it. I'm, I'm going to recommend this to, like, a, a 19-year-old co-worker. That, that, yes, that's what's yes. going to happen. Exactly. Just, but, but don't, don't oversell the movie. Like if they ask, you know, just be like, watch this movie. Let me know what you think and see if they get through the first 20 minutes. Oh, I guarantee you they'll get through the first 20 minutes. 
the uh, the uh, last thing I want to say on this podcast, not even necessarily about this movie, is Mike. Earlier, you were talking about putting your uh, future wife through the ravenous test, <laughs> and that connects to uh, an entrepreneurship idea that I have. And anyone can feel free to email me to send me some money for this, uh, which is a, a a dating app where there's no pictures, no ages, uh, no uh, no gender, no sexual preference. All you post is your first name and your four favorite films. And that's it. Uh, and then you have to try to match based on that. I'm 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 taking offers. I think that's actually a really. I good think you got it. You got to It should be top ten, top ten movies, top ten, just top ten of any of like a whole bunch of different things. And if you match up with people, then the app just connects you to the people you match up and says you have like a fifty percent connection rate. Or uh, that's a great. That's a pretty good idea. By the way, riddle me this. I'm on Rotten Tomatoes now. I usually hate the idea of like rating a movie and slapping a score on it. But this is odd. I don't think I've ever seen this before. So the critic reviews, it's 48%. Yeah. The yeah, audience bad. score is 78%. Hell yeah. Usually this it's one's the, not for, it's not for the critics, baby. It's for usually, the masses. <laughs> <laughs> the hungry masses, one might say. I wonder they if I was hunger for man meat. Yeah, that that should have been the tagline, by, by the way. Yes. They <laughs> hunger for man meat. <laughs> Shit, I should have oh, marked this movie. That's a great, great line to end on in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Where can we find you online? Oh, you can find me on any on any social media platform. You can find me under Gameskeeper Mike. Um, you can, of course, find me on Goomba Stomp and Tilt. And I also write for uh, Cultured Vultures. All right, Simon, where can we find you online? I'm not writing or doing anything online right now, but I will say that if you don't call this podcast episode, they hunger for man meat. You're a coward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me writing for GoombaStomp.com occasionally now. I'm doing a few more movie reviews. That's pretty much it, though. I'm not really on social media at all. Um, Rick, where can people find you and the podcast? You can find the podcast over at sortedcinema.com and then to listen to the actual podcast, I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? It's it's on YouTube, it's on Podbean, it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, it's on uh, Pandora, I don't even know what that is, it's everywhere, but <laughs> sortedcinema.com, you can find all of the older episodes. I'm slowly releasing extra episodes from the past, I think I just released the Mad Max special, part one and part two. I uh, re-uploaded the review of The Guest. And Fuck, that's a great yeah. movie, man. Yeah, Patrick just watched it. He wants to review it again. Oh, it's um, so good. Good movie. So yeah, SortedCinema.com. And the Twitter handle is SortedCinema. Everything's basically SortedCinema. All right, then uh, we will be back next week with White Men Can't Jump. We'll see you then. You know, Ben Franklin once said, eat to live. Don't live to eat. Huh? Huh? Well, it's an easy decision point. You can either famine or feast. Live or die.